What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Art of Data Science Happy Hour. I was about to say Comet ML Office Hour. Just tells you how crazy my week has been. Uh, but thank you all for joining me today for the Art of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, February 11th, 2022. Uh, hopefully, you guys got a chance to tune into the episode that I released today. If you haven't, please do, because uh, it's a good episode. Speaking to uh, Alyssa Simpson, I uh, have a hard time pronouncing her last name. I think it's Ro Rocheworger. Uh, from, uh, well, she's author of a book called Real World AI. It's a great book. We talked a lot about uh, product management for data science and machine learning and how to structure data science and machine learning teams and some controversial takes on who the first person she would hire for a data science team is. So definitely check that out. A great episode. Um, also, hopefully you got a chance to check out the Comet ML Office Hours. Had a chat about all about machine learning reproducibility with uh, with an internal person, the head of research at Comet, uh, Dr. Doug, and also with uh, Tiffany Fabianic, who is uh, from AstraZeneca. So it was a great, great conversation. This upcoming week, we're going to be uh, doing just a solo session, me, for the first half of the office hours, just kind of giving a lecture style thing. And then also got uh, my colleagues, Drew and Michael, coming in, and we're going to be talking about the work we've been doing behind the scenes for the working session. So please do go ahead and check that out. Uh, man, it's good to see a packed office hours or happy hours session today. So a lot of a lot of faces I ain't seen in a very long time. Jennifer, what's up? Vin, what's up? Rashad, what's up? Mark Freeman is in the house with a special guest. Uh, which uh, we will see as soon as Mark returns or turns on the uh, camera. Um, shout out to Alexandra, Auntie Russell. Good to have all you guys here. Um, uh, I'm I'm super excited for uh, for for all you guys to be here. Uh, the next two weeks after this this session will be hosted by Antonio. He's going to take over while I'm visiting friends and family in Sacramento and San Francisco. Uh, so. Antonio, thank you for for taking over. So let's kick off a question. I I, I want to uh, I want to know, man. Like I want to get you guys' thoughts on this ageism in data science. Is it a thing? Is it real? Is this an issue that we're facing? Uh, ageism in data science. I, I I I'm I'm curious, man, because you know I'm pushing forty, and really I've only been in the field as a full-on data scientist for three years. Uh, even though you know I was doing quantitative stuff. Um, for, for for many years before that um but i'd, I'd love to get people's uh, people's takes on this ageism in data science uh let's go to uh let's go to vin and then let's go to tom after that uh and, uh, and then whoever else would like to uh jump in on this please do and if you're watching on linkedin if you're watching on youtube if you're here in the in the in the session uh please do let me know if you got a question. Drop it right there in the chat. Um, so yeah, let's kick it off with first with uh, Vin, then we'll go to Tom, then maybe we could hear from uh, Alexandra, then maybe we can hear from Rashad. I'd just love to get your uh, get your thoughts on this ageism in data science. Shout out to Mark Freeman in the building with the one and only Jeremy, Jeremy from NAS AI. Uh, but yeah, let's let's go to it, Vin. Let's uh, let's hear from you. Yeah, I think it's definitely a thing. But ageism in data science is different than ageism in like software development and all of the other technical. It's like we get another 10 year grace period instead of, you know, everything kind of sliding at 40, everything starts sliding at 50. But outside of that, it's the same. It's the same ageism. It's the same. It doesn't make any sense because you need people with 15, 20, 25, 30 years of experience to be on your team. 
especially at those top levels when you want them there when you're doing a new type of project or when you're trying to implement more advanced methodologies. There's so many different reasons why you want someone who's been through multiple cycles. Like I've been through software, SaaS, cloud, big data, data science. You just want someone that's been through each one of those cycles. And as you're starting to ramp up and build out solutions, you know, people like that are able to interject some sort of logic and reason, but the ageism is definitely there. And it's really, a, it's a function of how fast we have to promote people to management and leadership in technology. We have a whole lot of leaders who are in their thirties. If you go to other organizations, you don't see as many 30 year old VPs and you don't see as many you know, really people that are at that age controlling the hiring, controlling the perception of who should be brought on board. And there are people that if they've worked with very, very senior level people, they've been saved by them. And so they'll value those people. But if they've never, you know, it's kind of a self-reinforcing problem. So if they've never been on a team with very senior level people, they don't really understand why you need them and what they save you from doing and how they add to the team and make a whole lot of what you produce better and more relevant and how much more credibility they have. I don't know what it is about gray hair, but as soon as I got it, the C-suite started listening to me, not laughing at me. And I do not, it literally was like overnight, I got some gray hair and people started listening to me again. And so there's just so much, you get a lot from people that are in their fifties, sometimes even in their sixties. One of the people that taught me engineering, like big E engineering, mid sixties. And he was amazing at teaching, not only doing, but teaching. So there's so many advantages to it. But at the same time, if you've never had someone like that, you don't understand, you get promoted to the level of VP. And now you're just hiring people in their late twenties, early thirties, who all kind of look the same and all kind of have the same level of knowledge and you usually find out the hard way that you needed some very, very smart, very, very senior people to augment the younger move fast staff. So yeah, it's definitely there, but I think we're kind of different in that we're given a little bit more of a chance, a little bit longer career path, and hopefully it improves. I mean, really, hopefully we can make some, some people believers through my sales pitch for people that are older than I am, because you may be pushing, I'm pulling 40s now. I am no longer pushing them. So I got to make some space in the, the field for me in the next four or five years. You know, please don't kick me out. I know I'm getting old. Please, please don't kick me out. Ben, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, like if, if I can be 100% real, man, like I've got a lot of white here, but I die. Like this beard is completely dyed. It's very patchy in places. Uh, I, I, for the first time in so long, I saw... Uh, like I trimmed off like the the surface layer of the uh, the beard and, and just you know saw how evenly distributed the white was and I was like all right this look this looks good but um I was just worried I was like you know people gonna start thinking I'm, I'm I'm too old for this shit um and you know it's unsettling feeling uh but yeah thank thanks for 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 sharing that uh let's go to to Tom and then after Tom um if anybody else would like to jump in maybe you know if we want to hear from uh Rashad, Alexandra, Jennifer, um, or anybody else, please let me know. And by the way, if you do have questions, let me know in the chat. I will add you to the queue, whether you're watching on LinkedIn or on YouTube um, or right here in the room. Tom, go for it. 
I remember before my hair turned completely gray, before I even had one gray strand, I got fed up with the way this one woman was treating me. And I said, just went up to her and said, what the hell? She said, well, I just have a problem with young people. And I scolded her with my experience, my age, my background. She treated me differently from then on. But now that the hair is completely gray then, I sometimes wonder, am I getting it from the other end? If I am, it's very nefarious and stealth. So I'm not sure. It does seem the gray hair, I feel like, and the experience, seem to make you a bit more bulletproof to the bullies out there, like LinkedIn police and such. They'll still rear their ugly heads. And sometimes they do it in a nice way anyway, and that's appreciated when you make a mistake. But um, I feel really ignorant on this on the older end. And then I was wondering, you don't look very old, even with your slight gray streaks, and they're very slight, but I'm wondering if anyone, I, I think I'm the oldest looking guy here just because of my hair color. I know you all think that if I dyed my hair, I'd look younger than all of you. I know you all think that, but uh, no, I'd probably pass for maybe late thirties, early forties. I don't know. Um, I wish I had more to give though. I really, I really feel at a loss on the older end. I just remember experiencing it really hard because I looked young for a long time on the young end. Tom, thank you so much. Um, I forgot who exactly I said we'll go next, but you know, if Rashad or Alexandra or Jennifer want to chime in, please do let me know. And then, by the way, I do got Mark in for a question on, um, on data warehouse thing. Um, so if you, and, and I think there, George hit me up on a, uh, on LinkedIn, I, I forgot to get back to you, Dare, so we can take your question live and direct. Um, but yeah, let's go to uh, Rashad and then Alexander, then Jennifer, and then we'll go on to Mark's question. If un unless somebody else has anything to add here, uh, then I'd love to hear your opinion. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll preface this. I'm 30. I lead a small team data science on that guy that Vin was describing. Um, I've interviewed plenty of people who are older than me for data science roles. Um, so patterns, patterns I've noticed, they, most of the time I found that they were transitioning, uh, from another field and they weren't necessarily like statisticians before, let's say they were like in law, they were in, they had the MBA and they're like, you know what? I really like technical work. Um, so that's like, that's a, that's a big thing. Um, they definitely bring a lot to the table and a lot of times I wish I could hire them. Um, usually like, let's say law that, that gives them that means that they could probably contribute a lot to certain types of problems right off the bat, like say language problems and OP, like they probably have an intuition about like the challenges of text that would make them very useful in that capacity. I've unfortunately found that I, at least in the specific roles that I was hiring for that I didn't really need like that specific capability. And so with the limited pool that I had, uh, it did end up being other people in their late twenties. Um, I, it was more like a flaw, it's like a flaw on my part, a flaw on like the overall position and just like, can I utilize the skill? It was more like, oh man, I wish I could utilize this. Like I wish, but then the other person does better in like, say the case, the verbal case that I give. And they like, they, I don't know, they were able to wrap their heads around the real estate problems that we're dealing with better, like in a sort of, sort of objective, I guess. Um, so I, yeah, as far as like older people with the stat, uh, statistics background, 
um, not had the privilege of interviewing very many of those. Uh, maybe if I was at Fang or something, I would. Um, but um, yeah, that's mostly what I've observed as far as, uh, like, say, interviewing older people and like how how does it fit in? Um, yeah, I don't. I there's no like I don't have like a strong answer to that. I'm just telling you what I've observed. Thank you very much, uh, Rashad. Uh, shout out to Nisha. Good to see you again. It's been a while. Uh, Alexander, let's hear from you, and then we'll go to Jennifer, and then we'll jump into Mark's question. Um, unless anybody else wants to say anything on this topic, do let me know. And if you do have a question yourself, please do let me know what, wherever you're watching, LinkedIn, YouTube, or right here in the room, and I'll add you to the queue. Yeah, I think I might have a little bit of a, a different perspective on this, just from, coming from the fact that, you know, straight from undergrad, currently in grad school, you know, in the process of looking for my first data science job. Um, and it, the most interesting um, discrepancy that I've found uh, being at this point in my career is that the assumption of how much knowledge I have on paper and job descriptions versus in the interviews seems to be really different in a lot of cases. Um, so just as a, a quick example, the other day I was in an interview and, you know, of course the job description had a million and one different technical attributes that they were looking for three to five years of experience, you know, the, the standard things that I've been seeing in the job market. But then when I went into the interview, the expectation of my knowledge base was a lot lower than what was communicated on paper. Um, and that's been really interesting just from, you know, trying to get my foot in the door, trying to be able to to display what I do know at this point in my career um, and how vastly different that seems to be um, on paper versus what's communicated to me. So whether that's, you know, opportunities for improved interviewing skills, whether that's ageism, I couldn't really, you know, put a direct name on it, but it's definitely been an interesting experience so far. Alexander, thank you so much. Uh, so let's go to, let's go to Jennifer that actually uh, just noticed the chat, a lot of great comments from Russell. So I'd love to hear from Russell on this topic as well. Uh, and then we'll get into Mark's question. Um, I've seen it from kind of an interesting perspective, both inside the corporation and in this group, as from a profession exceptionally welcoming of a variety of ages, um, particularly with a welcoming attitude. When you come into this room, people love to communicate, people love to share. Um, and knowledge is everything to, to this group. I see that in a lot of different places. So I see this type of community repeated in many places across age groups. And so that's why my perception as I've transitioned from pure program management and operations role into more of a data role has been a very positive acceptance of someone, like you said, Richard, making that shift from one career to another um, at a, let's say later stage in life, but I'm not going to put a number on it. John, don't you say a word. I, I was just going to have to interrupt you on that one, Jennifer, because you're not that much younger than I am. And I'm, I, Tom, I got you beat, irrespective of the gray hairs. I think I've got you beat. <laughs> um, but I, I would have to add and kind of confirm some of the comments Jennifer's made there, as far as getting in, I've, just starting in this group, I've been in Tom Ives' group as well. Everything that I hear uh, so far is age interdependent. It's strictly knowledge. And you know, especially a lot of the work being done remote, uh, what, what difference does it make? Uh, I, I see a lot of that in a lot of people's attitudes. 
Um, I'm taking some uh, courses down at uh, Purdue as well. And nobody can mention the basketball game last night. That's okay. Um, but uh, watching uh, the people that are in that class as well, it, it's more about being involved. It's more about knowing the subject. And I appreciate groups like this as I'm just getting started. My background is engineering, uh, project management, and uh, transitioning to data science and uh, uh, enjoying it. It uh, seems to be a very fun field right now. Thanks so much, John. And John, this is uh, Jennifer's brother, John, correct? Yes. Yes, yes exactly. Awesome. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, John. Super, uh, super excited to have you here. Um, uh, uh, Costa, we'll get to you after I get to Russell. Russell has some great comments, and we'll get to uh, then we'll get to you, Costa. Um, Russell, yeah, go for it. Sure. <clears throat> uh, evening all. Um, so I've I've written quite fast and furious a few comments here, so I'm going to try and summarise a few of them. Um, so my first one, which was in response to your initial question before Tom answered, was that you know it generally depends on the specific experience of the individual as to the age, you know, like with with ageism, et cetera. So if the person that is old has uh, a specific experience in the field, that can override the the ageism um, bias, I think. You know, are you struggling to hear me? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're good. Oh, you're you're good. Can, okay, cool. Yeah, you're good. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and then I went on to say that, you know, I'm in the older category here. Uh, you probably don't need to squint too far to see that I've got some gray hairs in my beard. I, I don't bother. Um, dying them or, or whatever, you know, they're, they're just there. Uh, they've only been there for the last two years, I swear. Uh, I had not a single white hair before COVID happened. I've not had COVID, but just coincidentally, perhaps for other, you know, incidental stress, being locked up in home, I don't know what it is, but they've all come in the last two years. Um, and uh, one of my other questions was, you know, I, I generally think that, um, sorry, one of my other points was, I generally think that my skills and knowledge set balances out my age as I get older and older each year, uh, so that I feel generally secure. Uh, but then I also commented that I come on calls like this, and I see people like Vin and Tom who are, you know, also getting on in years, but they seem to have, you know, a lot of a lot of skills and knowledge in the tank that I don't have, and it, it makes me feel kind of less balanced, but I guess that's kind of imposter syndrome. You know, we've spoken about that on other calls uh, at other times. And then what was my most recent comment? Uh, yeah, so I went on to talk about, um, you know, criticism and uh, like cancel culture type of thing. I think there's a, there's a general philosophy with a lot of people, especially in the younger generations that have grown up with social media being a constant, that it's not been a new source to them. That's a very easy way to make themselves feel better about themselves is to throw criticism or shade on someone else, regardless of whether it's uh, legitimate or not. You know, you, you can feel, you can vicariously and superficially feel better about yourself by putting someone else down. And regardless of the legitimacy, as I say, you know, very, uh, very much um, like the immediacy of, of Twitter, uh, LinkedIn posts, Facebook, etc. You just type something really, you know, not, not very pleasant and uh, you tend to get a, a, a thrill from it. And, that, that's one of the worst things about the, the modern social media uh, sites that I see. Now, I think that's, that's covered most of them. Was there any comments in there I've missed? No, that's good. Thank you so much, Russell. Um, so, Gene, I'm going to get to your comment, but uh, Kostab did have his hand up just a couple of minutes ago. Kostab, uh, if you want to uh, chime in with your comment, please do. So, I mean, 
Yeah, I, I can see a lot of the concerns that are being raised and some of the issues like come down to um, when you're talking about a senior member in a team, the value that senior members have brought to me and the teams I've worked in the past is that wealth of experience that Vin was talking about, right? Now, it may not be the specific experience of I've gone through this particular uh, technology stack, but I've seen the previous technology stack. I've seen the previous leap and change in technologies. I've seen, uh, you know, the previous change in the way business operates. Um, so managing change often gets easier if we start to include experience in our bill for a team, right? So my question, and this is more of a question extension than anything, is how much does this come back to the fact that a lot of data science, when you start off in data science, you typically start off as an individual, right? You start off as an independent person looking at a bit of a data set and one single script uh, to create something, right? Whereas in more traditional engineering fields, you're very aware from day one that your specific skill set isn't going to get you over the, the finish line. And it's going to be a team effort even within a, a group of the same skill set. Like, so in robotics, there was never a single project that was actually serious at all that I could even imagine that I could do by myself, right? But what we're seeing in data science is this, I don't know if it's a bias or if it's a, uh, it, it's, it's definitely a mental thing where we think, okay, I'm just operating on my own. And we've seen that in effect because of the amount of time that it's taken to get data scientists on board to say, okay, we should be using Git. We should be using, uh, you know, uh, CICD workflows so that we can collaborate. Uh, so the collaborative side of it is lacking, I think, in data science compared to other principles um, of engineering. But so my question is, how much does that contribute to this idea that why do I need someone more senior? I'm able to do this task myself. You know, we're maybe not able to see the bigger picture when it comes to engineering larger and longer living systems. Um, and I'm really curious to know what some of the others who've been through those engineering cycles uh, think of that. It's a great question. And I, I like this quote that Antti dropped uh, right here into the, into the chat. <laughs> I think it's uh, appropriate to say here. Uh, one of my most favorite sayings concerning intellect and wisdom is from Einstein. And it says, an intelligent person can solve a problem that a wise person will avoid. Uh, so I think that's, uh, that, that fits in quite, quite nicely here. Um, but while you guys uh, noodle on that, um, let's uh, go to Gina. And if anybody has any comments to, um, uh, to, to Kosev's question, please do let me know. And Mark, I, I promise we will get to your question. We'll get to it. Yeah, and so Mark, um, I'm sorry that I, I missed part of your answer because I think it might have been getting to part of my question, which is, you know, if I think I'm hearing that, you know, the experience that comes from a worker who's been out there for a while, and that would be me as well, like that is valuable in so many ways, but you know, if they, uh, if they haven't worked in that technical area, so I'm career switching into data science, although I've done a lot of analytical work, I've done consulting, I've done a lot of things. And I've, you know, you keep hearing, you know, kind of referring back to Custom's comment. Um, I hope I said your name right, Custom. Um, you know, that maybe data scientists 
aren't as collaborative as they could be. And yet you hear over and over again, data science is a team sport. It's extremely important to um, be able to collaborate across different, you know, both within a data science team and to different business units. Um, people with more experience tend to, you know, not always, but tend to be able to navigate these things and, and see patterns uh, from the, you know, past experience that they say, ah, I've encountered a situation like this before. And um, I think we need to proceed in X, Y, Z way. And yet if you're hiring for somebody and you're looking first and foremost for certain technical experiences, you know, that then that, whether it's soft skills or just other kinds of experience that are relevant, but not necessarily easily communicated in response to a job application or, you know, in a resume review, how do we, you know, how, how do you communicate your value in terms of that, those years of experience and how you can bring that to a position? Um, is it that you should be targeting uh, manager positions or are manager positions, you know, really only feasible if you've already mastered at least certain parts of the tech stack. Um, so I guess that's my, <laughs> it's my follow on question uh, to the follow on question. So um, yeah. maybe you want to come back to it and people can noodle on that after responding yeah. to custom. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, how about, how about we do this? Do you guys noodle on both of these questions? Cause they're really good, but I'll have Mark and Jeremy uh, provide some insight here to this question. And then right after that, Mark will go right into your question. Um, but this is uh, not to say that we're tabling the earlier discussions. If you guys have uh, some, some insight, definitely want to hear it. So please do share it. But uh, Mark, go for it. Mark and Jeremy, go for it. I hate to ask, what was the core question? Because I, I turned my computer off and came back. And I know we're talking about age. I've been trying to figure out exactly what the real question was. <laughs> Yeah, so it was a combination of questions. So, um, Gina, do you want to kind of uh, quickly uh, summarize the, the one-liner version of uh, of your question? Then we'll have uh, Mark and Jeremy uh, give some insight on that. Sure. Um, so, and Kostov may want to as well. Um, so basically, for older workers, people may be transitioning, old or not, how do you, um, what's the best way or what are some ways that are effective in terms of communicating the value of your experience? Um, because a lot of times your resume will be shorter and because you're only focusing on your data science experience and people might not realize what all you bring to the table. I, I think it's a tough problem. I mean, obviously, but um, yeah, I would love to know your guys' thoughts on that. Mike, want to go? Yeah, if you want. Personally, I come from the finance background and I've been to data science thanks because of the problems I've been facing. So every time I was uh, looking for answers, I didn't necessarily want it to have like technical um, information, but more like experience on how to deal with things. And uh, I think this is the big, big point on, it's not about like coaching or telling the newcomers how to do things. It's more about like how to mentor them and to how to give them the, uh, a way of thinking um, based on the experience. This is what I was looking when I was talking to all the people. And um, I've been specific on this when I was 
talking to them and uh, they were happy enough and, and wise enough also to not be like, you should start with this and this because their technology was, was not what I was looking for. I was looking for Python. I was looking for a bunch of notebooks that I could start from. And, and those guys were using VBA and all these old, old fashioned technologies that, it were, that was working before. So I guess it's more about the, the, the pathway, how to think of, of a problem, how to isolate different um, um, hypotheses. And, and I learned a lot from, the, from, I've been mentored by a lot of, like I've been looking for mentors every time I was uh, trying to fix a, a data problem in my past. Um, I think this is where we, as a younger generation, what we are looking for is, is more mentorship than, than coaching or than stuff like that. So mentoring is, is probably my answer to to this question. It's about mentoring. And then, uh, my take for things like, first of all, I, I, I really value, um, different perspectives. I, I come from startups, which are typically on the younger side. Um, (laughs) and and so, you know, I'm trying to think back. I, I don't think I've had many like managers or colleagues too much older than me. Um, so I, I'm <laughs> now reflecting on that. I'm like, I, what do I need to do to change that? Um, but the second thing is I constantly reach out to different perspectives, especially people who have substantially more experience in the industry. Um, and a big reason why I come here because individuals with a lot of industry experience are here. And so I can hear best practices and bring it back um, to my, to my company. Um, but to go back to your original question of, you know, you, you have these amazing skills, um, and you're going to data science and you're complimentary. So how can you bring that to the table? And for me at the end of the day is like, my job isn't to mess with data or my job isn't to write code. My job is to provide value and just so happen to use data as my medium to do such. Mm -hmm. And so how can your previous skills before data really allow you to drive impact. So for me, like I talk a lot about my, my adventures in entrepreneurship. And I'd say all the time, like being a data scientist did not make me a better entrepreneur, but entrepreneur, entrepreneurship made me a way better data scientist. And so I know how to take like a really raw idea and quote unquote, bring it to market within my company and get buy-in and figure out who's going to need it. Who's my core user and really approach this product focus and like customer focus where my products um, that I build internally or accept it and proliferate throughout the company. And that's not data science skills at all. That's the fact that I've gone through that with trying to bring my own kind of mm. company product to market and has replicated a smaller scale within the company. Um, and so, you know, how can you tie those previous skills to show that I can take this data medium and do the same thing for you? Um, that's my huge value add. Oh, and by the way, I can code really well too. Mm. A great uh, uh, comment coming here on YouTube from Dave Splains says that older workers with the experience should be held in high regard as many systems are working with legacy data and legacy systems. Uh, FIS in Milwaukee still uses and trains in Fortran. Interesting. Um, So I love yeah. the finance. Yeah, let's go to uh, let's go to Mark's question. By the way, if anybody, uh, if you're watching on LinkedIn, if you're watching on YouTube, if you're watching on uh, here in the room, if you got a question, let me know. I'll add you to the queue. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on in the chat here, so you might have to like uh, just send me the DM so it so it stands out. And if anybody wants to come back to any of the questions that was posed uh, by Costeb or 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 Gina or Costeb or Gina, if you want to resurface those questions a bit later, 
please feel welcome to do so. But Mark, let us go to your question. Yeah, so I'm, I'm working on a really exciting project at, at my job where um, essentially it's, uh, you know, scale our data warehouse, make it so it's a really strong foundation to really build on top of our future analytics. So we have a data warehouse right now. Um, we're a startup, we're scaling. And now that we're scaling, we're coming across kind of growing pains, right? And so I've been tasked with, you know, leading a team to, uh, to explore where our options are and then afterwards build it. And so currently I'm in that exploration phase and um, I want, I don't want this conversation to be like what technology to use, but like what pain points or things to consider if you were to build a data warehouse to like catapult your data strategy um, and you know, your, your, your data maturity, like what things would you consider like must haves or avoids? Let's, uh, let's go straight to Vin on this one. Then after Vin, uh, if, is Makiko still here? If Makiko is still here, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, and then maybe even uh, if, if Rashad or uh, Alexander or anybody else has some uh, tips here, would love to hear it. Just, um, you know, just think, give me like that hands up reaction thing and I can add you to the queue. Uh, go for it, Vin. Yeah, Makiko is going to kill it. But in advance of her absolutely destroying this question and making it sound simple, why? Are you doing this? So I think, I think a big why is at the end of the day, um, you know, I think, I think the best way I can say, I'm not trying to like put like all information out there for a company, but uh, you know, uh, we're building fast, trying to find product market fit. We found that. So now we're scaling. And so now we're like, all right, we we're able to, you know, for, for the current level we're at, we're able to deliver pretty well. But to get to the next level, our data infrastructure is just not cutting it. And so we need to invest and make upgrades to it. So that's why we're engaging in it is, you know, there's these different opportunities in the market that require data processing. And to get there, we need to do this. Well, let me ask the vague questions because I, I kind of know what you I think I know what you're doing. But is it the amount of data or is it the amount of data that you have to send to or the amount of models being sent to, is it all three or is it one more than another? I would say, um, I think the best way I can describe it, I've described it before, our data is structured really well for a web app, not for analytics. <laughs> our engineering team crushed it and our web app, amazing, super secure, you know, can deliver what's want, what it is. Like we're, they're able to build an awesome product, but then that's dumped into the data warehouse and I've just been running around trying to make sense of it and put some like stop gates in there to get it running. But now I've gotten like, because I've done that, I've gotten buy-in from leadership and the company of using these tools. And they're like, oh, wow, this is integral. How, how can we go back? And so my amazing managers jumped in. Well, we can just upgrade it and make it much better for you. Yeah. I, I mean, it sounds like transformation, like data transformation is like the number one thing that you need to do. And it's not so much cleaning as getting it ready for, to make it useful for models, to make it useful for, mm -hmm. for ingestion and for inference or for training. Yeah. Are you like, are you targeting both? Yeah. So I think, I think the best way to describe it is one, the data pipeline from the database to the data warehouse, just making that very uh, consistent. Um, and then the next step is, all right, cool. We got this raw data. Um, I'm pushing for DBT because um, I, I love that transformation tool, but I'm open to other suggestions uh, in the sake of being exploring what's the best solution for our use case. But uh, 
there's that transformation piece. So basically create like a really solid data mart. Once we have that data mart, we can do the cool analytics. We can create different features and start building machine learning models and then serialize that and put it back into the product. So at the, at the core of it, I mean, I, I strongly believe that data warehouses really serve as the foundation for, you know, driving data maturity. And so, you know, I have this opportunity to get it right. And I want to make that happen to make my life easier in the next few years. All right. So the reason why I've been asking all these boring questions, now you have to do what I just did with you to everyone else in the business, because <laughs> you're going to find out that everyone has a different opinion and what you put in place the entire company. And I know it's small and that's why I think this is actually feasible to do by one person, but whatever you put in place, you'll either be loved or hated for. And if you don't understand how everyone else cares about this, because they will, and the tool that you're putting in place, you'll only find out after it starts messing with their stuff that they <laughs> cared. And then they're going to be like, well, why didn't you ask me? Cause, cause how was I supposed to know? So that's, this is what I've saved you from is now have this conversation with, start with the why, why are we doing this again? What, what's your, okay. So what are your use cases? What would it, like, seriously, just hit exactly what I did with everyone who has ever looked at data in the entire company. So a uh, couple things. One, my manager is phenomenal and she already organized a whole team and just said, Mark, you're, you're leading it. <laughs> so again, my manager is amazing. So we got this cross-functional thing and the, I, I did that roadshow of asking about data a year ago nice. um, and asked everyone, I have a whole spreadsheet of that and like of the wise. And that's how I got to building like these, like V1 tools to make their lives easier. And now that's why they're like, Oh, data warehouses are important. We should invest in this. So I guess like from there, you know, I've done that groundwork. Would it be worthwhile to do it again since like a year later? And it's kind of like being more serious or, you know, is there another step after that? No, you've forgotten somebody. Just trust me. I, I know you've gone, I know you've gone through the entire organization and I know your manager is a rock star, but 100% you've forgotten somebody. And that's probably true because we've doubled since then. So I probably, yeah, there's like always, there's always, and so, yeah, go through, do, do the questioning, just kind of like I did and figure out what the biggest concerns are and try to get to the point where you consolidate to as few tools as possible, building as few tools as possible, you know, buying as much as you can off the shelf and make it as easy to use and easy to train on because as your business scales, you have to onboard so many different functions. And since you're a startup, you're going to be onboarding like crazy. When you said the word growth, the reason why I'm telling you to do the roadshow first is because you have to know not only everything you know now, but everything you don't know that mm -hmm. you're going to be using it for. And you are also going to need to know what the people you haven't hired yet might need. And I mean, that's really where you're going. And that's why I'm kind of leaning on the, the business side of this so heavy is mm -hmm. because you want to build as little as possible because it, it gets expensive and ugly if you have to build a lot. You want to pull as many off the shelf tools as you can, because that'll make training time easier. It'll be easier to hire skills and capabilities going forward. If you have something that's common and off the shelf, not customized. Mm -hmm. And you're also more likely than not going to be able to scale using off the shelf to new use cases. Cause I mean, every company that's selling this, every large company that sells any sort of data warehousing or that sort of solution has like an entire ecosystem. And the bigger the ecosystem is, the more likely as you go into niche use cases, because healthcare has them, that you're going to be able to actually find a solution provided 
by and compatible with what you've already built. And so those are like the businessy. And now I'm going to let Makiko be technical and kill it. Go to Makiko and then Russell's got some great uh, tips yeah. in as well. So after uh, Makiko, go to Russell. And if anybody else has questions, please do let me know in the chat. I see y'all on LinkedIn. Uh, 10 of you watching. Y'all better smash that like. And um, yeah, let's go, to, let's go to Makiko. So rollout and maintenance, those are really, really, really big factors because whatever you build, your team will be owning, which means you will be the one who is waking up at 11 p.m., to those like Slack notifications from stack driver that something has broken and you're going to have to handhold people as they use a new tool and all this. So, um, so we're, we're going through something, sim well, not necessarily for storage, but we're setting up infrastructure like on our team. And we try to think of what we need in store by like three phases. The first one is like, what is immediately relevant to like the project? So it's like the short-term phase. The second phase is like the rollout, um, the education, the, uh, you know, the drumbeat messaging you do at the town halls, the office hours where you lead people through it. And then what we call the longer term success, which is the maintenance um, and ownership of it. And because what sometimes happens is like when there's this kind of white or gray space and, you know, you're, you go into that vacuum and you, you take on leadership and you build something that becomes the thing that your team owns forever and ever and ever, and they never get to touch anything else. <laughs> like that's just what happens. So, um, so a couple of things that I would think about one, um, the long-term maintenance, that's a huge thing. It's easier to maintain something if it's within the same vendor and especially if it's a managed vendor, um, in general. So even though I really, really love the open source out there and I love the small gritty startups, um, the reality is a lot of times like your existing provider, like Azure, AWS, GCP, um, they're more than capable of providing um, robust technical solutioning um, and support. And more importantly, too, you can negotiate with them for credits or for like, like consulting. Um, that's my favorite thing is I'm like, well, you're a big company. You're, you're Google, you're big. Uh, let's negotiate. Let's, let's figure out some credits. Let's, let's squeeze you a little bit. Cause this is, it's not even a squeeze. It's like a, no, it's like a tap on the side of a whale. They're not going to feel it. Um, you know, so that was preferred. I, it, I think it's good to be really boring and unsophisticated with the tooling. Um, because if it is really easy, then the fun part is later on, you can convince some other team to like take it on if you no longer kind of want to do it. Um, so that's important. The second part is security. When you have to roll your own stuff, you really have to think about security and credentials. So for example, <laughs> if someone leaves and their model is still running in production, um, but it's like a personal account, and we, I've seen this happen before, uh, but it wasn't like a service account with credentials that you could manage. Um, then that's like not good. So security is a big issue. Um, the other part is also like connectivity and just also how fast off the ground you can kind of get going. Um, you know, so those are things I, I would, I would think about. Um, and in the GCP world, right, the really sort of like unsexy kind of solution that just happens to work for most people is like BigQuery with like, depending on what kind of asset they need with like a Looker dashboard. Um, 
it's, I mean, looker sucks, but sorry for anyone who's like a looker fan, but you know, in comparison to others could be better. Um, I use data studio and every time I use that, I want to scream. Oh yeah. I think didn't, I thought someone said that they are sunsetting data studio in like a couple of years or something. I don't know. They should. Yeah, they probably should. Um, but the way we, so the way we do it is, uh, we use airflow to manage like essentially these like Python script pipelines, uh, that pull like data to BigQuery. Um, if we have like stronger use cases, then we can use something like Spanner or Bigtable. Um, and then we have some pub sub or data flow throughout that. So, you know, but it's, it's like really boring, right? Like you don't see anyone writing white papers, the more unboring the solution is the less often you'll see blog posts about it, which means that like all the companies that are doing something that actually works and is like scalable and like robust, uh, they're not writing about it. everyone who writes the blog posts and the case studies and system design reviews. It's all like systems that either they had to like finagle something to make it work or like, I don't know, they're using some like buzzword stuff. Um, but a, a lot, a lot of like the typical sort of like use cases for batch and streaming, they're, they're pretty well documented within like GCP, AWS and Azure. And so that's another like big selling point to why it's good to like go with those. But I would just like a hundred percent lean on the, like consultants and, and like the, um, solutions architects, um, from the cloud companies and like basically, yeah, like that's, that's the way, like I would do it. Um, yeah, just be like super vanilla and all that, because the thing that you still need to do, right. Is like just getting the project up and running. That's like the first stage, mm. getting people using it and adopting it. It's the second stage, making sure that it doesn't like kill your mental health and your physical health with like pings late at night, that is like the tail end, but it is like a very important part. <laughs> so I would definitely think about it in those three phases. Um, yeah. And in terms of like the actual solution, like if, for example, if you have something super specific, like IOT streaming, um, they have like use cases there at, in all those vendors I've seen. Um, so that's pretty well documented. Uh, but even then, like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's just, that's just my take. Use very boring tools. <laughs> Thank you, Mikiko. Uh, let's go to uh, Russell. Then after Russell, we will go to uh, Rashad, then Kostub. Um, I had queued up uh, Rashad there. Uh, and also real quick, just, just for context, I think the best way to describe it is that I'm not implementing a new data warehouse. I think the best way I can describe it is refactoring our current data warehouse to make it better. Even better to, to squeeze as much as you can out of the cloud vendors. Just, just squeeze them. Get, get that insight. <laughs> get that strategy. Russell, go for it. Sure. So my, so my comment was about the vendors themselves and probably more in context if you are looking to go new, Mark, rather than uh, refact what you've got already. Uh, but it was uh, an understanding that, that many might not have that with a with a large-scale enterprise um, data warehouse, uh, they will store the data that you've got in places and they'll have a data center infrastructure beneath um, your interface to them that, that stores that and most likely to maintain diversity and security of the data, they will store it in multiple locations. Uh, so for a country that's as big as uh, you know the North Americas, those multiple locations may be within the country. 
So the only complications you've got for, say, GDPR or uh, equitable data protection um, regulations or laws will be cross-state. Uh, however, if they're going like a next level, and I suppose this is going to depend on whatever the company contract is with the provider, if they are duplicating that data internationally to, to protect against, I don't know, cataclysmic events, you know, like meteor hitting or something and wiping out a, a huge amount of data centers, um, which which they may choose to do, as I say, depending on the, uh, on the um, contract you have with them, then you need to be mindful that if you have specific data protection regulations applicable to the data from the client's data or your own data, uh, be mindful that there, there could be some what I call kind of stealth issues uh, with where that data is stored. So a lot of people don't think of that layer beneath, uh, you know, the, the data warehouse itself, uh, but it can be an issue. Go to uh, Rashad and then Coast. Uh... And that was very interesting. I learned a lot from everyone else's response. I don't know as much about the, uh, the technical side of this and, uh, so that was very cool. Thanks everyone for that. Um, I just want to add, like, there's um, some small things. So first, there's a. I heard a lot of talking about like what you want to do, and that you generally want to serve people more, and that you made this list of interviewing people from a year ago, right? Um, so a tool I learned from a chief product officer I served under once. Um, it's a good tool. I, don't, I think all product managers use is to figure out like your customer like archetypes like who are the different populations in the company and then like abstract them as much as you can uh, and then figure out. And then from that, you could be like, who's being the least served right now. Um, it sounds like analysts or people who want to do more deep. Uh, I mean, I mean, it could be data scientists and model training, but it sounds like if you're talking about this, you're probably first wanting to like, just understand the data in the first place, like visual make, make like dashboards, like sort of thing, yeah. like understand. Yeah. I get would the, argue this. It's the employees serving our customers, so customer success. Ah, customer. Okay, yeah. Because mm -hmm. yeah, I can work with the data. I, I, it takes me a little bit, but I can easily get the data to do analysis. But, like, that's only a few people on our team. We need the whole company who aren't data literate, or not data literate, but um, aren't code literate, right, to be able to say, like, oh, yeah, this is our data. I can go to my customer and be well-prepared. Mm -hmm. Learn that from uh, that strategy course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I read uh, earlier today, someone was opining on the, the death of the, the, the star schema and like um, the dimensional model. Um, just saying, they were saying that in the 80s, this, this model was sort of created because it allowed you to efficiently store data in a very highly normalized form. And you could have indices that would quickly let you do whatever analytics you want, but it's not very intuitive for people outside of data to understand that model and then do the joins or whatever to, to make it work. And they're like, well, people want to see spreadsheet and spreadsheet esque data. Um, and that's like more broadly understandable outside. So my suggestion is like, okay, if you've identified that population, then start with like work backwards from what ideal state they would see like on their end as a user. And then you can be like, all right, that's the format of the data. Cause it really sounds like you're just reconfiguring the form of the data uh, to be like, more wide, more long, or something, you know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, we, yeah. we have a NoSQL database, mm -hmm. so it's mm -hmm. very nested, and BigQuery allows nesting of data. And so mm -hmm. when I first showed up, I, I it was pretty scary. Uh, oh, <laughs> okay. I'm pretty good nice. with NoSQL databases now. Oh, uh, scraping JSONs, I understand. Um, yeah. The other thing I'd say, like, just for for tools, um, some like 
if you're thinking of tools, don't just look at like who has the most features. Um, also consider who has the most momentum and then who will be the best partner in the long run. Because sometimes like products will gr grow into what you want. And sometimes depending on how big a customer you are, like, you can influence them and help th make them do customization stuff for you. Um, I, I think like also oftentimes if a product has a lot of momentum, but is not the leader right now, you'll get a price discount. And I think that's important in startups. So if you grow together with them, it's a, it's, it's a call, right? You don't know, but I, I think probably a startup would especially benefit from looking at the momentum of when comparing and not just like listing the features or, or being like, all right, this is the best. That's a good so, call. I like that. Go to Costa, but then Mikiko. And then if anybody else has questions or anything, please do let me know. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the two things that come to my mind in this conversation is more um, how much support can they actually provide? Uh, and how uh, how serviceable how, how does their service actually work? You know, are they large enough to be able to support high volume data flow? Right, you might have a, a system that's full of brand new features that are you know cutting edge, but if they're still a fledgling startup or a fledgling business, they might not have the support capability to see you through at volume. Right, so you got to make that fine call between momentum, serviceability, their ability to support issues. Right. Um, and, and this is where some of the bigger players win out is that they're able to provide that level of support if you need it. Um, but yeah, it's a bit of a balancing act. Um, and I found myself trying to figure that out myself on, on various other tools, not really for data warehousing or data legging, but more on the, um, more on the data labeling and, and that side of life. So yeah. Thank you very much, Costa. Let's go to Mikiko. Yeah, I guess like it's, I guess in my head, like I'm, I'm still in some ways, I, I'm actually not hearing a need for a data warehouse as opposed to like some sort of analytical tool slash pipeline analytics engineering like layer. I That's guess. Exactly it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Because I, I'm like, well, if it's already in, in BigQuery, uh, I, I have like some notes on like the comparison of like, you know, latency and, and query calls against BigQuery and others. So I'll just see if I can try to find it. Um, but it, yeah, because if they're only doing like analytical queries and some of them like are or not familiar, are, are not familiar with SQL, it, it, it almost just seems like you kind of just need some like interface on top of the data storage, like on top of BigQuery, understanding like, are there ways to sort of like better kind of like shard or index BigQuery for like faster optimizations. Mm -hmm. um, and then for people, if you have like two specific sort of groups, then it's like figuring out how you can enable one group to use SQL and the other one to just do um, like export to CSV. <laughs> which. Oh. In my experience, like a lot of the customer success revenue people I work with, they that's what they really like. They're like, we either want it in Salesforce or we want it in HubSpot or we want it so that we can like copy it to Google Docs and like do charts or whatever. Um, so it's almost like I don't know how much you need to build as opposed to like just plug in <laughs> 
or what have you. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you really called it out. Is this analytics engineering piece? And, um, and, and Ben called out to the transformation component is that once we get those transformations and the, it's stored in a data warehouse in a way that's easy to access, I can easily plug it to Looker or, or Data Studio today. Um, I can easily plug it into like a notebook system to do R&D for like machine learning and stuff like that. Um, and I think my hypothesis is that a big bottleneck for our data maturity is the fact that we don't have this transformation layer within the data warehouse. And I feel like once we get that key piece, then I can start pushing for other aspects um, that are more fun, right? Um, doing the cool analytics, doing the machine learning, but none of that stuff matters if every single time I do it, I have to spend like 20, 30 hours preparing the data um, because there's so much business logic and so much um, so much going on or the data pipelines down for certain tables. So there's like mismatch in tables. So my, my hypothesis is if I get the data warehouse like at a solid state, then we can move forward on other things. But if we skip the data warehouse, we're just putting band-aids on top of thing, on top of the real issue. And you know, we're gonna have a shaky foundation for when we want to do machine learning, when we want to do advanced analytics, when we want to do A-B testing in a much more advanced way. So actually part of the pitch might be to so it's part of the pitch to build out the team too, like get the people. Cause essentially like I feel like in most cases, someone has to be responsible for doing the transformational layer. Sometimes it's like a, a specific team mm-hmm. and other times it's like part of the duties of a data engineering team. It almost yeah. seems like you might want to push the headcount aspect of it while you're figuring out the technology solution as well. We closed a series C. So uh, we, we have funding for, uh, for some roles and I'm excited to announce some to, to this group once they're, they're ready uh, for that. Uh, but also like, yeah, we don't have a data engineer and like we need a data engineer. Uh, and I've just been filling in that spot uh, and I might just try to move towards that data engineer piece because um, it's, it's just a big need in our company. One of the most Heartbreak, don't, think, don't you think you or I should be Mark's next CDSO? Is what CDSO stands for? Chief Data Science Officer? So Maybe. here's a, so to play just, the devil's advocate. I'm just dreaming, Mark, just dreaming. Sorry, Jim. <laughs> so, so My manager the, has that title, unfortunately. <laughs> so to play the devil's advocate, if he, uh, maybe actually now is the right time to find the right data engineer because the messier things are, the more pain people feel. Whereas if you solve it, then they'll be like, why do we need to find someone? Yeah. Yeah. So just a thought. So just the, uh, a, a further question on that. Um, and Harpreet, please stop me because I feel like I'm taking up a lot of airtime. No, 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 um, is what team should a data, data engineer be on? Should they be under the data science team or should they be under the software engineering team? Because um, you can make arguments for both. But typically, you know, our thought is we think it should be on the software engineering side because they're the one creating the platforms to like collect the data. Um, and that transformation from them to us is very challenging. We don't speak the same language. So we had someone on their side that can speak our language that could potentially be helpful, but it's just guesses right now. So I want to go to Vin on this one because yeah, Vin shook his head. I'm curious. Physically uh, responding very physically to this, but uh, I will say, uh, if you turn into the episode I released today with uh, Alyssa Simpson Rothwerger, uh, we talked about uh, 
this very issue. It's like, okay, who do you hire in what order for a data science team? Definitely check that out. Uh, Vin, uh, let's uh, hear from you. You will hate your life if you don't control everything that you need in order to deploy a model to production. You will hate your life if you don't control everything you need to deploy a model to production. <laughs> you will absolutely hate your life. So everything that everything that touches a model must be controlled by the data science team, which is awkward because you're going to be building a data and analytics organization. And this is going to start touching other people's domains. So this gets awkward quick. But if you can get in front of it, which is where you are right now, where they haven't been hired in yet, and so you don't have to start stealing from other organizations yet, bring them all in under and start like a, a data and analytics organization, like start using that word or mm -hmm. those words, because that's what's going to help senior leadership understand. It's not just a data scientist. It's not just an ML engineer. It's not just like this little wing of IT now that your business basically depends on data science and depends on models. The data science organization is part of the data and analytics organization and own everything from infrastructure to people that you need to deploy models. Because if you don't, you will have people in charge of part of your workflow or part of your development and deployment pipeline who don't know what you're doing. And that will always be a process of painful education. So data engineers, machine learning engineers, even some software developers are going to end up working in your organization and start to like consolidate just from the beginning. That's super interesting. Okay. I'm going to bring that up to my manager because we, we, we've had this conversation um, just trying to go back and forth, like where, where should a data engineer sit? And so we we're kind of been on the fence on that. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, just intuitively, I would I would imagine it should sit it should that should sit on the data science team. That's how I would uh, would structure it as well. But let's hear from Rashad. Uh yeah. So I'm uh I'm with Vin on that. So we recently we were pulling data from uh, there's a very gifted data engineer we have, and uh, we were pulling data to do uh, machine learning on from a view in SQL, and uh, the view was like three years of data. And uh, everyone, everyone was under the impression that this was all the data that existed. You can see where this is going. The new year happens and the data vanishes from 2018. We're like, oh, well, that's interesting. What happened there? And uh, so we were like, okay. And then we, we went to the, we, we asked a bunch of people and eventually found someone who could point us to the underlying query. We regenerated the data um, and we found it went back all the way to 2013. Transformational. I was like, oh, interesting. I'll always ask tough questions now, um, no matter what, because we were trying to go fast and we're like, oh, we didn't ask that question. So yeah, you want to control it. You want to control it. Um, I also think in a broader perspective, this gets to a, a, the constant debate between functional teams versus pods. So like a pod is like sort of oriented long, a long-term team oriented with, with like made up of several functional pieces that are doing a specific thing um yeah and and um it sounds like you guys are functional teams uh in enterprises they often do they call it the matrix like the matrix org like functional teams arranged into pods over you know and that can get complicated um i i it probably depends on your on where you are and your use case but i would generally think i generally think like 
the pod orientation makes more sense because the team gets used to working together. And then there's always a business connection that is implied in the team structure rather than um, a functional team where it's like, I guess we should be doing stuff. We should be doing engineer stuff. Let's build some pipelines, I guess, you know, uh, meanwhile, like the pod, it's like all their business, business, business focused. So um, that's, that's my hot take. Nikki, go, go for it. Yeah, I would say like, so it, it's interesting though, because like typically like companies think they're doing data products, but a lot of times they're, they're not, you know, like, so it's one of these things where they have like attritional, like IT, you know, DBA Oracle um, system um, where everyone suffers. Uh, no one's happy. Um, you and the DBAs themselves. Right. But they're not really doing data products. And then like you build a data science function, they're like, oh, we need data to build like machine learning and data products. Right. And then you usually have like the, you know, the, the old guard where they're like, yeah, no, we just can't do that. We can't trust you. Yada, yada, GDPR. Da, 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 da. So it's a little bit weird where it's like, sometimes you have to do, um, what would they call like a skunk works, skunk, skunk works team. Is that it? Right. Where like, you kind of have to put together this like lean Swiss army ninja team where they kind of go do stuff that maybe is not cutting edge for the industry, but it's like cutting edge for the company. Um, they like have to choose their tooling and like, they're essentially proving out the concept of like, Hey, actually we need to like be much more seriously invested in producing these data assets, making sure that they work. Um, sometimes even using new tooling and then the rest of the company will kind of catch up and then they'll go like, okay, well now we need a data engineering function. So it's one of these things where it's like, just because you start the first hire, like in the data science team, um, it doesn't mean that that is where all the efforts will be concentrated. And, and to a certain extent, you wouldn't want that long-term, right? Like you would kind of want a data engineering or data function that does sort of touch more teams that provides value for the company. But sometimes you have to start off in like a really small place or like in a specific team to show the rest of the company that it's worth like heavily investing like in a data function. So it's one of these things where like they'll start off in data science and then once like enough value has been proven, they'll say like, Oh, well we need this for like this, this org like finance and we need it for customer success and we need it for marketing and all that. And then they'll be like, Oh, but we can't just put it all on this one person. And then they'll go like, okay, well we know how valuable this is. So now let's like build out a function and then it'll kind of go towards there. But like, if you don't start that person out in the high value area, you're never going to be able to like prove out the need for it. And this is also why sometimes like, instead of trying to like solve someone's problems or solve a company's problems, like, okay, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to figure out a technical solution. Sometimes it's good to kind of like let them suffer and go, yeah, you know, see if we had more people, we could... Oh, if we had more people who are strategy minded, who could come in and help determine the stack, you know, then we could, well, then we could kind of go further and all that, you know, but it's one of these things where when things are going well, companies are like, eh, you know, and things might not be going well, but you have like that one super service oriented person that is like working 40 to 60 hours a week, they're covering up all the patches. So the company never sees like, oh, like. This is a pain point. So, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm not I'm not targeting you, Mark. That's like that that was me like in like my last three jobs, you know. But so it's one of these things where it's almost better to like have the problem be there, like 
like make the argument to hire a person into the team, like hire a data entering or analytics engineer into the data science team, have them like prove out some like really cool projects and then also have them like get, you know, buy in, like help determine the stack. And if you do that, you can kind of make the argument for a more senior person, like, Hey, you know, we would want someone who's a senior engineer or like a staff engineer or whatever, because they'll help determine the stack. They'll eventually help pave the way to, you know, greater value. And then, you know, once they've done that, right. You have the skunk works team. That's awesome. Then people are like, Oh, well, we want that too. Give us two of those. <laughs> it's kind of like house shopping, right? They're like, mm, I didn't want a house. Oh, but I want that one. It has a pool. It's got a fireplace. It's really nice and cozy. Um, you know, so that's kind of like probably how that's like the life cycle in a way, but for sure, like starting it off um, in data science, I think is really important for that data entering function. And it also making sure that they're able to play nice because there is a little bit of this like territory sort of like big dog kind of, you know, fights that go on where it's like, well, we own the database and we can't trust you. So if you get a solid engineer who can like talk the talk, then they will be more like amenable. Yeah, that. literally took me a year and a half to to get that buy-in from Edge and give me read right yeah. access to the database. Should yeah, be. yeah. Great insights. Thank you very much, Makiko. Um, anybody else got any questions or anything to add to this discussion? Please do let me know. Um, otherwise, I'll start giving some PSAs, public service announcements. Uh, great stuff happening on the podcast coming up over the next few weeks. Next week, got an episode releasing with Liz Fosling co-author of No Hard Feelings, one half of Liz and Molly, uh, who is uh, also at Who and who Mark introduced us to. So Mark, thank you so much for making that happen. That was a great conversation. Liz is amazing. Uh, we recorded that podcast a very long time ago, but I'm excited to be releasing that uh, finally. Uh, then after that, we got a episode with Justin Wynn, who is, um, if you guys don't know Justin Wynn, follow him. He's a uh, uh, he's pretty much doing some awesome stuff, gearing content on LinkedIn towards college students, which I think is really fascinating. So he's got this podcast called Declassified College Podcast. Um, I actually think that episode is actually um, one I recorded back in 2020 and it's finally getting released. Uh, and then Fabrice Mesador as well, Brent Dykes, Joe Reese, Brittany Doe, Andrew Jones, Natalie Nixon, Christina Stathopoulos, Chanin Dasnamath, and Daliana Liu are all lined up until uh, the end of April. So a lot of great content coming. Uh, like I mentioned, release an episode with uh, Alyssa Simpson-Roshwerger, which um, I think Mark, you will be very, very interested in checking out. So please do check that out. Uh, a lot of cool content coming up. Um, I was gonna ask Jeremy about uh, his, uh, uh, what he was doing over at Netflix, uh, but it seems like he is no longer in the building. He just stepped away for a brief moment. He's gonna be yeah. back, so just right, well, out. Yeah, if uh, we'll see if uh, see if he comes back. It, in the meantime, though, look if it, like questions are welcome. Uh, Dare George, do you got a question? Let me know. All right. Uh, Dare George actually sent me a question on LinkedIn. Let me let me address that real quick. Uh, and I, I think this will be great because um, uh, we got some great insight here. Okay. Uh, yeah, what, are you here? Here, George, go for it. I'm here. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. Um, I, I sent you something. I sent something to to you uh, 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 personally. Can you can you check that? Thank you. 
Yeah, definitely. But uh, this uh, message on, on LinkedIn, I like, he, he wanted to get some ideas for, uh, for project ideas, right? So uh, especially using SQL. So I got some, I got some, a uh, couple of good tips for you. Um, first is check out Danny Ma's content, Serious SQL. Uh, he's got some amazing projects that you can work on with SQL. Uh, but if you are actually looking to get your hands on some real data, dear George, let me, let me, uh, let me ask you if you are uh, curious about just doing some analytics for my podcast, because I got a ton of data I can get you access to. Um, so if that's something that you'd be interested in, um, let me know because I can, I can, uh, I can get you uh, access to that um, very, very easily since I own the data. Um, Yes, I'll, I'll, yes, I'll be interested in that. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Maybe you can help me find out what the best day of the week to release my podcast is. How about that? How's that for a project? Uh, Mark, go for it. Um, I'm, I'm, of course, going to plug the Web3 uh, approach for things. There is this website called Flipside Crypto. And the reason why I like it is because even if you don't care about Web3 or crypto or anything like that, they make it really easy to sign up and then they just give you a SQL kind of uh, window pane that you can just run SQL instantly. Um, and you don't have to worry about setting up the infrastructure. You don't have to worry about data costs. It's just a whole playground with crypto data um, that you can use SQL and really play around with, but also build really cool dashboards with. So that connects to dashboards. Um, it's on top of Snowflake, which is a, a data warehouse tool. Um, and so I would highly recommend because it's real world data. It's still a little messy. Uh, will require some like domain knowledge looking things up, but then you could connect it to a, uh, to a dashboard. So it's not just doing SQL. It's you build a data product that you can show maybe in portfolio or things. And then if you're really into it, they also have little bounties where you can use their service and if it wins, you win some crypto. So you can get paid to learn. I like that approach as well. Um, do, do you know uh, the like the the bounty amounts? Uh, what uh, what they are, uh, Mark? For these SQL challenges, what the bounties are? What is that? Of, uh, what that. the bounty bounty amounts are for these SQL challenges? Ooh, I don't, but typically they've seen from like fifty to two hundred dollars worth of crypto. Um, but it's like it's like in like weird coins, <laughs> so like I don't know how how useful it is. Like I I just think it's cool for experience. Um, uh, but you know, if you, if you want to add money to your wallet and deal with taxes, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Jeremy, Netflix, NAS AI, what's happening, man? Uh, the, the, it's been, it's been a crazy, crazy encounter to, to be able to be there. So two days ago, um, I actually met the notebook infrastructure team over there. So they've been uh, playing around with notebooks to basically get metrics from all the upstream information. So everything coming from the device to the decision makers. And they are using notebooks for that. So each notebook is one metric. And we really matched on the vision because first of all, when we started NAS, we were like trying to use notebooks in production and run them like on schedule to be able to get metrics and, and be in the comfort of the notebook and not not having to deal with so much engineering. And um, they were having the same approach uh, to, to, the, to the problem. Um, so what we learned, uh, what I learned from this interview with them was that now that they have all these notebooks running around and 
talking to each other because they can do micro decision making from the notebooks and trigger action from different notebooks stitched together. <laughs> they have a problem of um, templates. They need more templates uh, in the organization. They want people to use those notebooks on, the, on, on any kind of scenario. So this really matches with the vision we have for NAS as being an aggregator of all those uh, data science templates uh, for people to really kickstart whatever they were trying to do in a minute. Like um, if you figure out this, this template, uh, we want to host all of those templates into our, our repository and be like, oh, I have this tool, I want to do that thing. and um, and I can kickstart without having to write a single line of code. I need, just need to understand the structure of the notebook and, and start itself. So a really good, uh, really good meeting I had with them and uh, really promising because now that we are here um, in contact, um, we plan on, on writing a paper about the need of data sites templates um, for people to really jump into problem solving with data really quick. And, um, and I, I hope like a lot of things will come out because they they have needs internally that could be open sourced, and they have uh, some of you know the community we are trying to build on on contributing the templates can also help them, but they can help also the community. So it, it can be a good exchange of value to to be able to to work on this um, awesome notebook repository uh, that we are trying to build, and um, yeah, eventually some good good stuff would come out. Let's see. That's happy awesome, to answer that's... any question you guys may have on, on what I've learned. Yeah, like NAS AI, like Notebooks has a service. It's uh, extremely cool. I highly encourage all of you guys to check it out. And uh, I mean, it, it makes sense that uh, Netflix is interested in it because I think they are one of the few companies that I feel like take Notebooks super, super seriously. Like They do. They're, they're, yeah, they they are super all into Notebooks. I haven't seen any other company that that you know is all in. On you like you know, uh, the, this is very interesting because what they were explaining is that, and, and this comes to the conversation we just had because of some software engineering and, and where data engineering stands and everything. Um, they do see notebooks as, as really different from the software engineering um, workflow. So you use notebooks to create and destroy stuff very easily all the time, like, like metrics, they are moving. So, Someday the wind comes this way, the, the metrics would be this one, and then you want to destroy it and then create another one the other day because it, the wind has changed. You know, the, the, the thing you want to follow are not the same. And, and this cannot be supported by software heavy software engineering um, and, and, and shouldn't be because it, it needs to like, be more stable, more into the infrastructure, more into the databases, more into like, something that is core. So there is a, um, a, a loop of... of uh, using notebooks to follow all those metrics, then coming back to software engineering, building cool APIs and really strong stuff that you can rely on and use it back into notebooks. And, and this is how they, they, they play. Um, so I, I learned a lot, like literally it was the most interesting meeting I had uh, my whole awesome, life, man. really. Congrats, man, that's huge. Uh, hopefully I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens, looking forward to seeing uh, maybe nas get acquired by netflix who knows man yeah. who knows what I, I could mean, possibly happen who knows what could possibly happen but highly encourage you guys to check out nas ai also check out the uh the, the project that mark had did with nas ai doing uh, linkedin analytics um pretty much uh doing what shield charges too much money for uh <laughs> for uh for free and uh and it's really streamlined super cool to use uh jeremy how long are you in uh, san francisco for 
Uh, I'm there until uh, Wednesday. I'm leaving Wednesday, coming back to Paris. Ah, all right. Well, I don't think yeah. we'll be able to connect, but hopefully, hopefully. Uh, I will be back. <laughs> yeah, I'll be back. But I mean, it doesn't look like there's any other questions. Uh, and Nas uh, is N-A-A-S dot A-I. N-A-A-S dot A-I. Notebook as a service. Notebooks as a service. Harpreet, do you struggle like I do with wondering why people don't prefer to come to the Boise area or the Winnipeg area over the San Francisco area? I do not understand that. Yeah, because it's been negative 30 degrees Celsius here for like a month, <laughs> month and a half straight. It's a 70 right I, now. Yeah. I rest my case. Cold weather lovers, right? <laughs> I've been like, you, you guys don't understand how much snow we've had. Like, I don't even know where to put it anymore. It's like, I, I clean the snow and then it comes right back. And it's just like, why? Like, what? This is so, yeah, I'm excited to be back home in, in Sacramento. Uh, nice 70 degree weather. Uh, right by all the breweries and wineries that are very close to my parents' house, which I'll be enjoying a lot. Of, so I'm looking forward to that. Let me put it this way, uh, Tom. Uh, coming from Sydney, Australia, when I moved over to London, I had 19 days straight of just cloud cover and no sunshine. I can guarantee you the first day I had sunshine, I stood in the sun for 45 minutes going, yes, thank God for that. So weather, for some reason, really has a big impact how you grow up uh, as to where you want to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, and I do get a lot of sun for where we're at in the, yeah. in the North American continent, but yeah, oh, yeah, it gets cold where we're at too. Yeah, during summertime, we'll have sun from uh, like 4 30 a.m. to about almost 11 at night. It's awesome. Um, so it's quite nice, but goddamn, the winter sucks. Winter sucks. Uh, really bad. All right. Does not look like there is a a lot of questions coming in. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for hanging out. Appreciate you guys being here. Remember, next two weeks is going to be Antonio taking over uh, the hosting duty. So do show up, give him support. Uh, and um, I'll be listening. I'll be listening. Make sure you guys are behaving while I'm away. All right. So, guys, take care. Have a good rest of the week. And remember, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. <laughs>